Han and Chewie flank a skull whose eyes glow malevolently. They are surrounded by troops of, of some kind. Needless to say, I bought them and devoured them. They were, after all, only pound fifty each, which was a remarkable deal in those days. Daly's Han Solo novels are wonderfully pulpy and rapid reads, rarely more than 150 pages, and these three novels really embrace the 50s flash garden roots of Star Wars and feature numerous memorable characters. They often feel very much like Firefly with their space western feel, and in fact, the second chapter of Han Solo at Star's End could be an episode of Firefly, with Han in the Mal Reynolds role and Chewbacca as Jane. These novels also establish how Han has that distinctive scar across his chin, as well as establishing Han and Chewie's bond of friendship. In addition to these novels, Han also lent himself to comic stories equally admirably. As with the daily novels, writers of the Star Wars comic books quickly realised that by setting Han in the role of space cowboy, they could tell a number of western-style stories, but given a science fiction twist, which led to takes on The Magnificent Seven and High Noon, with characters like Crimson Jack introduced to the series. Sadly, Solo's encasement in Carbonite at the end of The Empire Strikes Back took him off the table for the most creative and fertile period in Marvel's run, although his presence was felt in practically every issue. A number of the Marvel issues post the adaptation of Return of the Jedi focused on Han, including issue 81's Jowers of Doom, which we'll be looking at later, and issue 98's Supply and Demand by Archie Goodwin and Al Williamson. However, the problem with setting a story post-Return of the Jedi is that essentially Han's story's done, and it's going to be interesting to see how The Force Awakens deals with this. As such, stories set when Han is a smuggler, pirate, and all-round anti-hero are more interesting to us than the more domesticated character we see in Return of the Jedi. And Crispin, these books author, was known to me as having written the really good Star Trek novel Yesterday's Son and the novelisation to Kenneth Johnson's V, so I was keen to read these books. However, despite having them on my shelves since 1998 or so, I'd never got around to it. Since I've been on a bit of a Star Wars kick, well, since I was seven or so, but more so recently, I've been reading the new comics, old comics, and some of the books, so I thought I'd finally get around to reading this trilogy of philosophical blockbusters. The first of these books is entitled The Paradise Snow. The book starts with a much younger Han Solo than in the first film. Aged roughly 17 to 18 years of age, Han is an orphan with no memory of his parents. He's working for a Fagan-like thief, con man and all-round piece of shit, Garrus Shrike. Shrike is a nasty piece of work and Han has been plotting for some time how to get away from him. He manages to do this relatively early on, but his best friend, a Wookiee named Dulana, is killed helping Han escape. Very early into the novel, Crispin sets up Han's fondness for the Wookiee people, and that, despite his gruff exterior, Han has a heart of gold, especially when it comes to his friends. Some of these opening scenes, though, are quite harrowing. Han Solo is depicted in this book as not having had a happy or easy life, and in fact his trials make Anakin Skywalker's slavery in The Phantom Menace look like a day at the beach, if Tatooine has beaches. We discover that Han has lived rough, worked the streets, been beaten and nearly died. But he's used his time on Shrike's ship, the trader's luck, to not only learn how to be a pretty damn good pilot, but also a few other tricks as well. He's multilingual, knows how to skim off the top of the take without it being obvious, and has built up quite a contact list. All of this means that Han has some money in his back pocket, a number of fake IDs and some good experience behind him when he finally breaks free of Shrike's clutches. 
And Crispin has some interesting parallels here with Anakin and Luke's life, although the Anakin elements are all coincidence, as this book was published two years before The Phantom Menace was released. In both Luke and Han's case, though, both men wanted out of the current situation, and both men thought that the Imperial Academy was that escape route. Han is already cocky and arrogant early on, learning from a very young age to bury his real feelings, and he always has an angle or is working his own scam. This means Han has had his escape route planned for some time, and as such also has a destination in mind, a planet called Elysia. Han has seen an advert for pilots from Corellia, and under the alias Vic Drago, he gains employment. The opening fur rattles along. Han quickly settles into his new gig, learning very early on what he's doing isn't entirely legal. Basically, Han has been employed to ship three different types of spice, essentially drugs, for the huts. He also learns that the people who mind the spice are kept in a trance-induced state by a religious sect. Han is uncomfortable by all this but not enough to actually walk away from a high-paying gig, although it's made clear very early on that his employers really don't trust him, and have assigned him a bodyguard called Murr. Han also falls for one of the spice manufacturers, a Corellian girl named Pilgrim 921. 921 is later revealed to be Bria Tharon, and Han learns that she, as with all the pilgrims, is under some kind of mental thrall. Pilgrims believe that the priests who are smuggling the spice are conduits to some ancient gods and are being brainwashed into following a religious cult that keeps them docile. Despite the differences, Han risks his life and his cargo to save Merg's life at one point, which, I'm sure you've already guessed, will come in useful later. Immediately, we're seeing all the things that make Han Han in Star Wars come into play. He has no real problem with being a drug smuggler, but he hates hokey religions. He also despises slavery, and realises quickly that Bria is a brainwashed slave, which presses all of Han's buttons. Han's seduction technique of Bria is similar to his approach with Princess Leia. Grin lopsidedly, be charming, and just win her over by sheer force of will. And not surprisingly, this works quite well. He learns that Bria was once a curator in a museum, and wouldn't you know it, the cult leader has a collection of antiquities that need organising. Han gets Brea in to do all this work, ostensibly to get her out of the mines, but also so she can spot which items are both small and valuable, so Han can steal them later and make a run for it. Murg learns of Han's plan, but, because Han saved his life earlier, Murg is conflicted. He switches to Han's side fully, however, when Han learns that Murr's mate, Midoff, who Murr has been searching for for some time, is on this planet and about to be shipped off to the mines of Kessel. Merg suddenly learns that he has no loyalty to the religious priests, as they've known about Mirov this entire time, and have lied to him to keep him in line. Crispin amps up the action in the book, putting a ticking clock on the events. Breya is betrothed to one of the religious leaders, Merg wants to rescue Mirov quickly, and Han wants off this planet with the treasure, so the last third of the novel is all action. The Paradise Snur is a rollicking good read, fleshing out Han's background and showing him to take the first steps into becoming the character we will meet in Star Wars. His dislike of organised religion, which he sees as merely a way to control the populace, his loathing of slavery and his own code are all established in this first novel. His relationship with Bria happens rather quickly, but the camaraderie between Han and Merg is well developed, showing Han's loyalty to his friends and how those friends in turn quickly develop a loyalty to Han. The story then goes sour, as one would expect. Han manages to rescue Bria and return Murak and Midoff to their home world, but Bria's brother recognises Han from one of his scams, putting him on the outs with the family. 
Bria is also suffering serious withdrawals from the religious ceremonies that kept the pilgrims in line, and she doesn't feel strong enough to continue with it. Still, they manage to get away with a number of antiquities which Bria thinks belong in a museum, and so Han goes about selling them under the name Genos Idanian. Subtle. However, the money Han makes is lost to him. Even though he can fake IDs, he can't alter his retina scan, and the Hoth's not pleased with what he has done, embargo his cash. Things go from bad to worse when Brea gets him some money from her affluent father, but then dumps Han for what she thinks are honourable reasons. Despondent, Han uses the money to surgically alter his retinal pattern and apply for the Imperial Navy under his real name, which nobody actually knows. Well, no one except Garrus, who tracks Han the minute his real name comes up in a search, and, along with a bounty hunter, they take off after Han. The final confrontation is particularly brutal. To get away, Han burns the bounty hunter's face off so he's unrecognisable, and then kills Garrus, both in self-defence, it has to be said, but it does show Han is not afraid to use lethal force when it's his neck on the line. He then hits on the idea of dressing the bounty hunter in his own clothes to make it look like Garrus and Vic Drago killed each other, and the book closes with Han being accepted into the Imperial Academy. Pointless cameos are thankfully kept to a minimum in the Paradise Snow. Han has to make a stopover at Alderaan at one point, and in a recorded message we see Bail Organa and Baby Leah. Garm Bel-Ibli from the Timothy Zahn novels also makes a small appearance, but thankfully there is nothing too eye-rolling. Nothing is more irritating than the writer bringing in future elements in some fan service effort to be cute. Crispin also keeps from referencing future dialogue too much as well, which I appreciated. In fact, there are more overt references to Indiana Jones than the Star Wars movies, and Han wandering the lower regions of Coruscant evokes Blade Runner. The Paradise Snur is, as I've said, a very enjoyable book. Considering it was written before Phantom Menace came out, the Coruscant scenes are remarkably like the films, although Zahn's novels had already laid out the general feel of the place. There's even a question in the Imperial exams that Han takes that refers to Palpatine coming to power, which does not contradict the prequels. It's science fiction rather than the space fantasy of the movies, but the novels made that decision with the original Thrawn trilogy, so moaning about it now seems pointless. These early days of Han Solo show he has had a far harder life than Anakin, and this makes us feel for him. There are also characters introduced here that will pay off in later books. Han being accepted into the Imperial Academy at the end was quite a shock, as I wouldn't have thought he'd have had any real love for the Empire, but it concluded the first novel well, whilst leaving the reader to wonder what will happen next. It was quite a surprise, therefore, that the second novel in the trilogy, The Hut Gambit, picks up five years after the events of The Paradise Snur. Han is now back to being a pilot for hire, having been cast out of the Academy after stopping an Imperial from brutally beating a Wookiee slave. This Wookiee turns out to be Chewbacca, who has now sworn a life debt to Han following the incident. The big surprise in the early chapters of this novel being that Han doesn't particularly want Chewie hanging around. The opening pages are rather expositional, bringing the reader up to speed about this gap in time in a not terribly satisfying way. I know Crispin's hands were tied. She said in an interview she was pretty much given carte blanche, but was not allowed to depict the first meeting between Han and Chewie, but this leaves the reader a tad unsatisfied. Han and Chewie's bond is a big part of the appeal of the characters. How did these two become such great friends, and its omission hurts the start of the novel? Still, after Chewie rescues Han from a Sabak game gone wrong, the two start to bond, and they quickly fall into their established patterns of being pilots for hire. 
With Han now known by his real name rather than pseudonyms, he's offered gainful employment of the no-questions-asked variety by the Huts. Han makes it very clear he will not smuggle slaves, and this takes him to meeting Jabba for the first time. Jabba is impressed when Solo prevents a pirate attack on his personal yacht, and Han and Chewie find themselves working almost exclusively for Jabba, as that's where the big money is. Jabba even buys off Boba Fett, who is hunting Han, as per a contract from Teroenza, the Elysian slaver who Han embarrassed at the end of the Paradise Snow. In fact, as the title might suggest, the Huts play a large part in the Hut Gambit, with a lot of the plot centering on them, the ruler's crime lords, and the rise of the Empire in the Outer Rim, and how it affects the Huts' bottom line. It was a better book than The Paradise Snow, as it felt more like Star Wars than that novel, with its smuggler storyline, scene set on Coruscant, and more action concerning the Empire and the Imperials. As suspected, Bria Tharin returns in the most unlikely of places, and we get to witness the first meeting between Han and Lando Calrissian, which apparently wasn't off the table like the first meeting between Han and Chewie. I also greatly enjoyed that Crispin manages to fit both the Lando Calrissian novels by L. Neil Smith and the Marvel comic series into the narrative, with appearances from Lando's robot companion, Buffy Ra, and mercenary Rick Dool. There's even a nod to Shadows of the Empire, with a mention of Black Sun. Sadly, Crispin doesn't fur as well with the prequel continuity this time, though, with a paragraph about Boba Fett that would be completely contradicted by Attack of the Clones. She does get extra points for introducing a potentially gay character into the book. Brea, in this novel, is working as a escort to an Imperial officer, although it's made quite clear that his tastes don't run towards women. If this is indeed a homosexual character, it's probably a first, and it's done far more subtly than in the recent Aftermath novel. The Hut Gambit manages its political manoeuvrings and the G-Wiz action of Star Wars splendidly. There's backstabbing and intrigue with the Huts, Daredevil outer space combat with Han and his smuggling friends, and even a cameo from Darth Vader that doesn't feel forced. The ending is quite exciting. The Empire finally decide to do something about the lawlessness of the Outer Rim and launch an attack on Narshada, a hut-controlled world, with a plan to burn the land and boil the sea. Han and Lando find themselves in a fight to the death with a group of smugglers, simply because they are friends, although Han is always looking at how to make a profit. The other smuggler characters are all well realised, and Han's discomfort at having to work with two ex-girlfriends is well handled. In fact, Zavari, a Star Wars version of the DC Comics character Zatanna, is one of the more interesting characters introduced in this second book. Zavari is a master illusionist with a grudge against the Empire for some reason, and she has a self-destructive streak which Crispin contrasts quite well against Han, who isn't about to risk his neck if that can at all be avoided. Whilst both are reckless and daredevil, Han doesn't want to die, so his plans are always carefully constructed. Zavari doesn't seem to care if she lives or not, so she's more dangerous and unpredictable. All in all, the Hut Gambit was a more entertaining read than the Paradise Snur and well worth the time. There's more action with the Empire as they tighten their grip, and Han starts feeling the pinch of Imperial oppression more and more. Solo is characterised well throughout, and his friendships with Lando and Chewie are also developed fully. Bria Tharon also disappears again at the end, which sees Han heading to a high-state Sabbat game with Lando, having scrounged up enough money to enter this exclusive card house. Before starting to read the third and final volume in the trilogy, Rebel Dawn, I learned that there are marker points as to the positions of the three earlier Han Solo novels by Brian Daly. 
Crispin had a lot of respect for Daly's work, as do a number of other Star Wars authors, such as Matt Stover. And, because she's a respectful author, rather than one of these writers who only think their work matters, there are clear places where the three adventures, Star's End, Revenge and Lost Legacy, take place. This was a lovely touch, acknowledging that this is part of a wider universe, and Crispin having her work dance around the raindrops of Daly's trilogy was a nice tip of the hat to the earlier works. It's also noted here, as in Han Solo's Revenge, why Han has a scar on his chin, much like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade also explained how Indy had a similar scar. This blurring of the lines between character and actor is interesting, and it does beg the question of whether any future actors who may get to play Han Solo will have a similar chin scar. Rebel Dawn begins with Han far closer to the age he is in the original movie, and kicks things off immediately, with Han winning the Falcon from Lando in a game of Sabacc. From there, Crispin starts tying up all her loose ends almost immediately, with Bria Tharon now working for the nascent Rebel Alliance and meeting Winter, a character from other EU stories who was a confidant and friend to Princess Leia. The plot takes a fair bit of time to get going in this one, with a lot of time spent on Kashyyyk at the wedding of Chewbacca. The hut intrigue is also taking some time to unfold as well, but with the warring faction between the huts and the mystery of who killed Arak the hut, it's never boring. It's really the huts that propel the story in the first third of the novel. Han and Chewie are in a period of moderate success, and whilst we're happy for them, this doesn't make for great drama. There's a pretty cool action scene where Han has to rescue his lady friend, Sala, after a race around the Kessel Run goes wrong, but for the most part, Han and Chewie take a back seat to Bria Tharon. In fact, Han's story in this opener is almost the stuff of sitcom. He's got a wacky friend in Chewbacca, the funny neighbour in Lando, a cute kid in the form of Jarek, a waif that Han adopts, and an on-again, off-again girlfriend in Sala. We even get some extended comedy hijinks when Sala decides to marry Han after the Kessel Run incident that is neither funny nor dramatically rich. And when Han decides to flee with Chewbacca to the corporate sector, the reader breathes a sigh of relief that the more domesticated Han has been dispatched with and we can get back the cocky, arrogant smuggler we all know and love. The problem with Rebel Dawn in its early stages is that Bria Tharon makes the universe too small. While she is a rebel, and presumably moves in rebel circles, her hanging around with Mon Mothma and Winter makes the whole thing too insular. Crispin does some nice work with Alderaan, explaining how the pacifist planet of the artist has joined a violent rebellion, but I was expecting Bria to meet Leia at any minute, and I wasn't looking forward to it. Thankfully, that doesn't happen. I understand that we have to have Jabba be part of Han's backstory, but having all these characters be on the periphery of the action seems to stretch credibility too much for me. Still, Bria's story is at least interesting, in that Crispin doesn't shy away from the fact that Bria isn't doing this for any noble reason. Rather, she wants revenge on her former slavers, and she pursues this goal with a zeal that doesn't allow for taking prisoners. When Han flees to the corporate sector to escape the clutches of his wannabe betrothed, the novel then segues into the first of Brian Daly's Han Solo novels. This takes Han out of Rebel Dawn for vast swathes of the middle section, but fortunately there's a Han substitute in the form of Lando Calrissian. Lando bumps into Bria on Queen of the Empire, a luxury liner, and he starts to romance her, although, when it comes up in conversation, it's apparent to Lando that she's still hung up on Han. Lando is nevertheless a gentleman, and when Boba Fett captures Bria for the bounty on her head, a callback to the first novel, Lando makes a deal when Fett is caught in the crossfire between pirates who have hit the Queen of the Empire. 
The pirates are led by Drea Renthal, who was part of the pirate war in the middle novel. When Lando tells Drea that Bria is Han's girl, a stretch of the truth, but a necessary one, Drea's debt to Han gives them an out with Fett. Fett is offered a substantial cut of the profits to hand Bria and Lando over, and he reluctantly agrees, largely because he's aware that this isn't a fight he can win. Bria then tries to get the Huts to help with a raid on Elysia to free the slaves. The Huts don't care about the slaves, but Jabba and Jiliak, Jabba's aunt, do want to rid themselves of the Elysian Enterprise and take it over themselves. This causes problems for Aunt Jiliak, though, as there are many complicated political factions in play, and she refuses to aid Bria. Jabba, however, thinks this is a good deal, and, despite originally doting on his auntie, he starts to really resent her. Jabba starts to feel that Jiliak has gone soft with the birth of her child, and he starts to plot his inevitable takeover. Bria, however, with this overture rebuked, hits upon the idea of hiring smugglers for the attack, which leads her back into contact with Han. There's more political machinations with the Huts, as Durga the Hutt investigates the death of his mother, Arik the Hutt, and, having hit a dead end, he turns to Prince Zizo, who will help him in exchange for the defence plans to Nahutta. Jabba is right, though, as on Ulysia, Terranosa has assassinated another Hutt named Kibbuk and plans to run the drug operation himself. As mentioned, Han is missing from this section of the novel, but it's a testament to Crispin's skills that we don't miss him. She's done such a good job of setting up these other plot lines and characters that the time she spends on these events don't feel like wasted pages. The Hutt political manoeuvrings is pretty captivating, despite getting quite complicated. At times, I did think she should have called this book The Hutt Father. Han does return in time for the final third of the novel, however, and renews his relationship with Jabba. Crispin then manages to smash all of her dangling plot threads together in a conclusion that manages to be both rousing and downbeat. All the characters and situations she's been setting up since the Paradise Snow meet up in this final battle, as Bria manages to call a number of smugglers and pirates into helping her take down the Ulysian factor. Durga the Hutt gets his revenge on Terranosa, Jabba takes his place as head of the clan after Durga kills his Aunt Jiliak, and Jabba himself kills his baby nephew. Crispin does not skimp on the price these people pay, nor does she sugarcoat the violence with the deaths of the regular troopers and the huts being quite gruesome. It all culminates in tragedy when Han realises Bria has no intention of paying the smugglers she has roped into this personal crusade when she cuts them off and takes the spice on Ulysia for herself, ostensibly to fuel the rebellion. Whilst Han is as innocent a dupe in all of this as the others, Lando and his other smuggling friends, knowing of his relationship with Bria, believe Han to have been in on it from the beginning, and this is what causes the rift with Lando as seen in The Empire Strikes Back. Han, on the outs with his friends, still has to make ends meet, and has to take a quick job for Jabba, but he is forced to dump the load when the Imperials board his ship. He only gets away with his hide, as he is transporting a bunch of Corellian orphaned children at the time. Crispin successfully takes us from the high points of the early parts of the novel to the despair of later, as Han is pretty much ostracised from the smuggler's fraternity and his employment opportunities cut down severely because of his screw-up with Jabba. Whilst that part of the novel works well, a lot of this is too pat, demonstrating the pitfalls of the prequel. We know from the films Han has had a riff with Lando, and on our heads it's more satisfying than this, because, based upon the friendship Crispin has built between Han and Lando throughout these three books, I didn't believe for a minute Lando wouldn't believe Han when Han tries to apologise. Likewise, Han having to dump the spice because he's rescuing a boatload of children felt 
a little too much Mr. Nice Guy after Han has just been betrayed by the woman he loved and lost his best human friend. By this point in the story, Han is at his most cynical and downbeat, so having him be a hero to a bunch of kids felt out of place. There's also a distinct lack of jeopardy in this part of the book, which is unfortunate for the climax of a three-act story. We know how all this is going to turn out, and I'd pretty much figured out which characters were going to live and die based purely on that knowledge. The action scenes are frenetic and well-written, as well as being exciting, and Crispin writes in a very engaging and crisp style, but the prequel nature of the story lets it down on the final furlough. Even Bria's final fate was more eye-rolling than poignant. The last chapter of the book established that Bria and her squad's last mission is to run cover as some plans for a major Imperial battle station are transmitted to a blockade runner that is passing by the system. Yes, Bria is instrumental in stealing the Death Star plans, and she dies doing so. I have to be honest, I found this ending trite. The small universe part of the Star Wars novels I mentioned earlier is something I've always had a problem with, and this felt really contrived. I get what Crispin was going for, that Bria's last job as a rebel would ultimately fall to hand to finish, even if he never knew about it, but I didn't feel that this worked. In addition, for me, the final episode of Rebels would be perfect to be the place where we see who it was who stole the Death Star plans, especially if they did it like as a seasonal arc, and by the end of it, all the characters are dead. Maybe have it be Kanan or Ezra who, in a last-ditch attempt to get the plans to the Tanta V4, is killed performing this final heroic deed. Not only would this give give Rebels a, a really dramatic ending, but I'm trying to remember the last time a, a TV show killed off its entire cast at the end, and I'm only coming up with Blake Seven. But it would also explain why Luke was still only the last Jedi if Kanan and Ezra died just prior to the events of Episode Four. It also has to be said as well, as I've already mentioned, this Rogue One film is going to focus on this, which, which I, is the only decision they've made so far with, with Star Wars since Disney bought it that's made me go, uh. it's like one of those, well, who cares? But if the Rebels characters did it, that would make you care, because you, you'll have watched these characters over four, five, six seasons, however long the show lasts. All of the cute nods to Star Wars fans that Crispin had avoided quite well so far suddenly pile up in this last chapter, with Crispin even explaining Han's parsec mistake in the first film. All told, the Han Solo trilogy is a good, fast-paced read, fleshing out Han, Chewbacca and Lando's backstory to good effect. It was interesting to finally get around to reading this with the news that Lawrence Kasdan has written a script for a young Han Solo movie, and there is also a film in development about the rebel spies that stole the Death Star plans. I doubt that Kasdan read this series of books, and therefore I also doubt that the films will follow this story in any way, but it will probably follow the same basic template in that it will feel the need to show us an awful lot of stuff we already know. I hope it doesn't go down this route and gives us a rollicking science fiction adventure flick with just a few small easter eggs rather than overt references or cute continuity porn. Having seen Han's Alpha, it was interesting to look at Han's Omega. Post-Return of the Jedi solo solo stories are rare, at least in my limited reading of the EU from this time period. One of the best deals with the immediate aftermath of the shattered Empire of Jedi, and appears in Star Wars issue 81, cover dated March 1984. The cover is simply gorgeous. 
Tom Palmer paints a dramatic movie poster-style image that was ahead of its time. This kind of cover is commonplace nowadays, but back then it was a rarity, and it made it pop out on the stands. So much so that I bought this in its original US format rather than waiting for the UK reprint. This image is now on t-shirts, and when I saw it, I had to own one. Jowers of Doom was written by Joe Duffy with art by Ron Friends, Tom Palmer and Tom Mandrake. The story sees Han adjusting to life post-Carbonite and realising the difficulties that await him in his new environment. With Leia and R2-D2 in tow, he heads to Tatooine to collect some money he has stashed. But whilst there runs afoul of bureaucracy, Jawas and Boba Fett. Yes, this is the story where we learn Boba Fett survived the Sarlacc Pit, another move that was light years ahead of its time. The story is great, typically Star Wars, in that it is fast-paced and exciting. Land speeders chase after Jawa sand crawlers, the Tusken Raiders pop up for a bit, and the resolution is still ambiguous enough to suggest Fett may still be alive, even if the sand crawler he is on falls into the Sarlacc. Where this really scores, though, is in its character moments and dialogue. Han is already in trouble as the story begins, in a comical exchange between he and a rebel pilot to whom Han owes money. Han is as cocky and modest as ever, bringing readers up to speed on the events of Return of the Jedi for those who may not have seen it yet. To be honest, some of the dialogue in the early part of the issue is expositional, but that's the nature of the beast. The art is lovely in the opening, with Ewoks stood around just watching Han's animated argument. Leia rocks up, still wearing a nightdress, which leads me to assume she and Han spent the night together. A really subtle touch. And we learn this is the morning after the Ewok celebration following the destruction of the Death Star. What's notable about this is how little angst there is here. More recent attempts to detail the post-celebration events are full of hand-wringing and drama, whereas here we opened on a comedy beat. Still, Duffy doesn't skimp on character, and we quickly learn that Han is not over the carbonite freezing, or the fact that he's lost a chunk of his life. This was rich character drama. Han is snappy and aloof, and in very subtle strokes, Duffy paints as a reason why. These events have affected Han far more than he's letting on, and the only way he knows how to deal with the situation is to latch onto the things that meant something before. He goes back to the Millennium Falcon, and in a minor continuity nitpick, it still has its radar dish that was knocked off in Jedi. In the Falcon, Han actually has a bit of a breakdown. Fortunately, Chewbacca is there to comfort his pal. Again, this was really well-written stuff, covering no more than a few panels, and most of it in between the lines, but it's remarkably mature writing, and one of the reasons the Marvel Star Wars series never deserved the reputation it used to have as being campy and silly. Thankfully, the series has now been reappraised more favourably, and those of us that read it the first time round feel somewhat vindicated. Han heads to Tatooine, where, in a wordless page, we see Boba Fett emerge from the Sarlacc with no memory of who he is, or where he came from. A wordless page, again commonplace now, was a rarity in 1984. The third instance where this particular issue was broken with the conventions of 80s comic books and demonstrated that it was ahead of its time. Boba Fett surviving is fan service, but that Marvel did it so soon after the release of Jedi shows how their finger was on the pulse. We then learn a little bit about the political landscape of the galaxy post the Empire, and discover that it is, largely, no different for the inhabitants of Tatooine. Nothing has changed for them, and this raised an interesting point. On a grassroots level, as in real life, who is in charge makes little difference to the people on the street. Tatooine is a barren backwater planet no one gives a shit about whoever's in charge. Jabba's death has had far more of an impact on the local economy than the Emperor's, which I thought was an interesting touch. 
Jabba was a gangster, but his presence kept other gangsters in line. Without Jabba, the Jawas and the Sand People are running wild. Garrick, the man in charge of the docking platform on Tatooine, remembers that the last time Han was here he blasted off without paying his docking fees. A nod to Star Wars, but probably a continuity glitch as well. I'm pretty sure the Falcon has been to Tatooine since then, although it may not have landed on the planet legally, what with the Falcon now on the Empire's radar. Han then finds he can't access his credits. The bank has apparently been told he was encased in carbonite and his account was frozen. Duffy doesn't quite milk this for the irony that it deserves, but it was a funny gag nevertheless. Leia is waiting outside and, in another subtle piece of writing, is accused, not overtly, of being a prostitute. Leia learns something important here as well. Yes, she's overthrown the Empire, but what does that mean exactly to the people she was trying to protect? It perfectly demonstrates that Leia had a somewhat naive viewpoint regarding the political ramifications of her actions. Yes, the Empire were corrupt and murderous, but what can she do now to make the galaxy a better place? This isn't the story to follow up on that, though, although that Duffy manages to get such weighty themes into ostensibly a comedic and light-hearted romp is to her credit as a writer. Leia and Han return to the Falcon and find the Jawas have stolen R2 and were off to the races for the final act. Leia and Han steal a few land speeders, which the ultra-law-abiding princess seems to have no problem with, and pursue the Sandcrawler. The second half of the story is action all the way, although Duffy manages to sneak in a tender scene between Leia and Han and some typical Star Wars-style comedy in the Sandcrawler chase. The art takes a slight downward turn in the second half, with Tom Mandrake taking over from Tom Palmer as Inca, and whilst the layouts are fine, the finished pages don't have Palmer's talent for likenesses. Still, Boba Fett coming to as Han was trying to rescue him is a really quite cool moment, and very touching. Han tries to save Fett, but Fett regains his memory and opens fire, and Han has to abandon ship as the Joa Sandcrawler falls into the Sarlacc. It's a downbeat ending, as Han and Leia realise that the galaxy they just saved may not be all that different. And I did enjoy as well that, again, it's entirely possible that Boba Fett got away from this. Jaws of Doom is an exceptional issue of Marvel's Star Wars, as well as giving us a glimpse at Han Solo post his life-changing adventures. The title is wonderfully pulpy, as Star Wars titles need to be, and the story rattles along at a nice clip. As with all truly great Star Wars stories, it's as deep or as shallow as you want it to be, with some nice characterisation in between the action and the comedy works exceptionally well, coming as it does from character rather than being forced. Han Solo is the ultimate space cowboy, and emerged as a fan-favourite character in the Star Wars universe, his cynical scepticism running counter to the wide-eyed eagerness of Luke and the idealism of Leia. His ultimate redemption is understandable in a three-film cycle, but one wonders if The Force Awakens will have to undo Han's story arc to return him to the more interesting character he was in Star Wars and Empire, rather than the cipher he ended up being in Return of the Jedi. On the face of it, Solo's appeal is unusual. There's nothing original about the character. Pete Doole's character of Hannibal Hayes in Alias Smith & Jones, Dirk Benedict's Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica, James Garner's Brett Maverick or Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind all have elements of Solo in them. So we are left to assume that it was the perfect melding of character and actor, Harrison Ford, that made Han Solo as popular and as well-liked as he is. Whether another actor can slip so easily into his Levi's in the upcoming young Han Solo film remains to be seen. Thank you.
Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Consetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the iTunes store. Okay, back from that commercial break and uh, we'll cover some emails before we wrap this show up. Uh, the first email is from Jason Trenner and it's entitled Something That Must Be Reviewed on the Palace of Glittering Delights. Jason says there is something so insane, so crazy, so mad you will probably love it. It's a homage to 80s action movies called Kung Fury, and they put it up on YouTube. The film is crazier than Fever Dreams and a block of B-movie cheese the size of Rhode Island, and all the more glorious for that. And uh, Jason provides us with the YouTube link to Kung Fury. Uh, it's also on Netflix, and I've watched it because Michael uh, is obsessed with it. Michael's my son, obviously. And has the David Hasselhoff single which he got off iTunes. Dominoes falling. That's the one. The hero stands alone. I don't know that I'm quite as good a singer as David Hasselhoff, which says a lot. But yeah, Kung Fury is something that I have certainly considered covering because it was cheesy 80s brilliance. And Hasselhoff's good, isn't it? I like Hasselhoff, even though he has changed his name now to just Hoff, which seems a bit counterproductive to me, but whatever. Uh, so thank you for pointing that out, Jason. Uh, but I'd, I'd already seen it and already considered covering it at some point in the future. My next email, Lee Ditko Part 2, is from Chris Franklin. Hey, Andy. Hey, Christopher. Great discussion on the next batch of classic Spidey. This run of issues, or the Marvel Tales reprints of these in the 80s, is where the series really hooked me. And I became more invested in these than the actual new Spidey mags on the stands. And that's saying something, considering this was during the Stern Ramita Jr. run on Amazing Spider-Man. When I picked up the reprint of Amazing Spider-Man 12, I was gobsmacked. I had no idea how Peter got out of this one, even though I knew that he did. It's a testament to the work of Lee and Ditko that I could be held in such suspense knowing the future status quo of Spider-Man wasn't altered for all time with this book. Keep them coming, Chris. Well, as we speak, Christopher, the third instalment in the Lee Ditko Spider-Man saga is... um, one issue away from being finished in the writing stages and then obviously I've got to go through it again and make sure I've not made any stupid mistakes and then record it and edit it but it will probably be next I would have thought I don't know how long that's going to go on for now because they are taking considerably longer than I thought they were going to but hey it's Lee Ditko on Spider-Man it deserves nothing but the best Uh, our final email tonight is from Patrick Delmore who has emailed in to say hi Andrew I was happy to discover the second part of your Lee Ditko Spider-Man coverage when I got to work yesterday. It's been a great series so far and I look forward to hearing more. I was lucky enough to have a hardbound book in my elementary school library that collected Amazing Fantasy XV, Spider-Man number 1, and the John Romita chameleon story. Due to what my young eyes considered a vast improvement in the art in the last story, I assumed it took place decades after the first two. I was able to get Marvel Masterworks from my local library later on, and I still thought Ditko's human faces were creepy. Under Ditko's pencils, if Peter was grinning, he looked like he might kill. 
The library's collection of masterworks didn't take me to the end of the story, so I bought Marvel Tales with what birthday money I had, and I think I finished reading Ditko's run in Essential Volume 2. As an adult, I've changed my mind about Ditko, and see him as the master artist he is. I even paid full price for one of his Charlton Archive books this year. You've not weighed in on if you think Lee Ditko looks better in colour or black and white. The bulk of my collection is essential volumes with a couple of masterworks, and the oversized Steve Ditko book Marvel did a few years ago, which has the master planner story in it, so I've got an even mix of both black and white and colour. I think you've won me over on buying the omnibus, though. Thanks for the great shows, can't wait to hear more, and I would love to hear you cover Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Patrick. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Patrick, for emailing in. Glad you're enjoying them, as I am with Chris and Jason. Um, a couple of points in the, that I do want to address. Obviously, I first read Ditko and Lee's Spider-Man in the old reprints, so I have a soft spot for the black and white stuff, but I was also buying Marvel Tales, which was in colour, at the same time. So, like you, Patrick, I have... My my reading of the Lee Ditko stuff is a mixture of monochrome and colour, so I can't really make a decision. I love both of them. I don't think there's any difference. I don't think black and white or colour enhances or detracts from the Lee Ditko Spider-Man stuff, whereas I don't know that Doctor Strange is as good in black and white. I think the colour really does aid that. And then conversely with stuff like Tomb of Dracula, uh, Gene Colan's art on that, and some of the Neil Adams' more gothic Batman stuff... I think looks better in black and white. But to your point, Lee Ditko Spider-Man, like I say, it doesn't detract and it doesn't enhance. It's, it, it's good either way, is what I'm saying. So that's, that's okay. Um, one thing I do want to say about the colouring is Marvel released two comics in, God, a couple of years ago now. One was around the time of, was it Craven's First Hunt? The story they did in the post-Brand New Day era of Spider-Man. And they released an issue there that had a new Craven story in it. But also they republished the Lee Ditko Craven stories, both of them. And they released an issue um, of Spider-Man, just a, a special, that reprinted Amazing Fantasy 15 and Amazing Spider-Man but 1. And all four of those comics had been beautifully recolored uh, in, with computer colouring. And I'm not always a big fan of that. I've been looking at the recent Star Wars reissues... Um, the adaptations of Star Wars Empire and Jedi where they've recolored them and in some cases I think it looks lovely and in some cases it really doesn't work for me but in those Spider-Man comics it was gorgeous it just made Ditko's art look even better when it wasn't with that flat four colour rather limited printing that they had in the 60s and it's one of those things I've got the Lee Ditko stuff in Essentials I've got the Omnibus I read all the Marvel Tales. I've got the little pocket books that came out in the in the 70s. I've got the Lee Ditko Spider-Man stuff in multiple different places and formats. Treasury editions, UK annual reprints, the pocket books of the early 80s, the 15p black and white British pocket books. But I would buy them all again if they reissued them with, with that level of attention to detail in the colouring. They were absolutely gorgeous. Um, I cannot for the life of me remember what they're called but if you find them for cheap they're worth picking up just to do a little compare and contrast with the colouring and see that in the hands of a a proper colouring artist you can update the colouring on those old issues and they they look as modern and as fantastic and as brilliant as they ever did which I think is a testament to Ditko's artwork in many ways 
Uh, that's it. I didn't uh, have any more emails this time, so thank you to Patrick, Chris and Jason for emailing in. I do hope you enjoyed this uh, Space Cowboy episode, focusing on Han Solo. I wanted to get this out, obviously, before The Force Awakens comes out in, uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, as usual, I just want to remind you all that the Amazon button is on the Two True Freaks website. Click on that. It takes to Amazon. You buy stuff, we get a kickback. It doesn't cost you anything. It's a good deal all round, I think. And uh, I, if you want to email, and please do, I love getting emails, particularly about Lee and Ditko's Spider-Man, which is um, one of my favourite things to talk about and to read and to listen to people talk about. But if you have something to say about the Lee Ditko Spider-Man stuff, hey kids, comics at virginmedia.com is the current email address for the show. Uh, that about wraps up this one. As I say, the current plans are that the next one will be the next chapter in the Lee Ditko Spider-Man. But uh, as I teased a couple of episodes ago, Angela, my wife, and I are working together on an episode about the television show Supernatural. And, you know, you never know what I may come up with for uh, a Christmas episode. I may do a Christmas episode this year, because they're always fun. Always fun to do a Christmas episode. So um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. It's very much appreciated. This is a little vanity project. So it's it doesn't you know it does, probably doesn't do as well as other shows on the network, but I like doing it and I love hearing from people as well. So that's one of the main reasons for doing it. So um, thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Bye bye.